and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee Stud. The Tennessee Stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Please welcome the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller, and your host, Jeff Maldron. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Ron Fuller's Studcast. I'm Jeff Maldron, and it is a pleasure to be with you once again as the Tennessee Stud takes us down that road of wrestling history. And now, the man of the hour, the Tennessee Stud himself, Ron Fuller. Ron, how you doing? I'm doing great. Yep, uh, so glad to be here, my man, and uh, really looking forward to this one. And uh, we just, uh, we may make a few changes here uh, as we head into 1976. Uh, we're talking about 76 uh, within the next couple of weeks. And, you know, so... Uh, uh, just uh, looking forward to this one, and uh, let's see uh, let's see uh, how how excited we can get everybody out there today. Okay, well, where are we going today, Ron? Well, we're going to finish with uh, 1975 today. Um, uh, we're covering three shows in December for Jerry Jarrett, promised to him in June of 1975. Uh, one of them's in Lexington, Kentucky, and two of them are in Memphis. We're going to look at the last two Knoxville shows in December, Christmas night. And uh, three days later, on on Sunday, December 28th, uh, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, before we start the studcast, I'd like to point out a very unusual circumstance that occurs on this day and on this show, basically. It just so happens that this episode, number 127, is being released on Christmas Day 2019. Uh, and uh, what's unusual about that is the fact that we're going to be talking about the very same day, Christmas Day in 1975, 44 years later. <laughs> so, you know, I couldn't have, I couldn't have set that up if I'd have, if I'd have tried my best. But uh, it's pretty well, amazing. You, you, Ron, you are I, a good booker. I think you planned it that way, didn't you? Yeah. Well, maybe <laughs> I did. You know, I mean, it's just if I didn't, you know, it's like it's like the when you're a booker, you never know whether you're going to get it right or not. And uh, so this time I seem to get it right for whatever reason. So, uh, you know, I think it's just a great coincidence. And, you know, we're we're right here in the time frame uh, late in 1975. And, uh, and it's amazing that we're right in the same time frame 44 years later, late in 2019. Uh, so, uh, so, yeah, let's uh, let's really let's just go right ahead and jump into it. If you're ready, my man. Let's begin with the three shows I worked for Jerry Jarrett in December of 1975. Uh, I, I'd promised him I was going to work nine shows for him when I dropped the Southern Heavyweight Championship on the Mongolian Stomper, June 23rd, 1975, in Memphis. 
Uh, he used one of those shows in the first five days. He put me into Chattanooga, Tennessee on June 28th. And he there again, I lost to Stomper again, uh, put him over again uh, because, you know, Jared had done really good by me and I wanted to do uh, good by him uh, because I was having to uh, get out at that particular point. Uh, I did not work for him again until September 7th in Louisville, Kentucky. And that's right after I had injured my collarbone. I worked five more matches with him in the next month there. And uh, all of those matches were under a great deal of pain from that badly dislocated clavicle problem I was having. Uh, he had decided he wanted to use up the last three of his nine shows in December of 1975. So, you know, I, I promised him the nine shows because of the way he had treated me while I was there. Uh, I really uh, like Jerry. Uh, he's a good guy. He treated me well. And uh, he worked well with me. He was willing to send me talent when I needed it. And I would do the same thing as I grew in my company and been able to, to provide him with talent that he might not could get. And it, was, it really worked out well, well for us. And so I was very happy to uh, have the opportunity. So let's talk about the first of the last three shows that I'm going to work for him in December of 1975. First one of those is going to be in Lexington, Kentucky, in the huge, and I mean huge, Rupp Arena there. Uh, Lexington's about 170 miles north of Knoxville. Uh, Jared's drawing big money in this town. Uh, he's using his Memphis TV, uh, bicycling around as other territories do. It goes into Louisville. It goes into Lexington. Uh, I don't know all the places that his television program did go. But obviously, wherever his show is going, if he's doing well in Memphis and he's doing well in Louisville, he's going to do well in Lexington. Lexington is a little different than the rest of those towns. Lexington is much smaller than Louisville and obviously Memphis. But at the same time, it is, it is a really hot wrestling town. So he's drawing the big money in this town, and he runs it only once a month there. And he runs in Rupp Arena. I mean, it's a... That's a 20,000-seat-plus building. It's really, really big. On this night that I'm there for him, there's 15,000 fans probably in that building. He's not totally full, but he's got big portion of that monster building full. My brother and I, uh, my brother's also on that card with me, as well as Don Carson, who's working for me at that time. In fact, I'm going to have my match that night with Don Carson, and I hadn't even wrestled him yet in my own company. And I'm going to wrestle him before I wrestle him in my own company. I'm going to wrestle him in Jared's company. So uh, what I remember most about this match with Carson was the fact that I'd been seen on Jared's TV out of Memphis as a Southern champion that showed in the Lexington market, like I said before, every week from December 1974 until June of 1975 when I put the belt on Stomper. I had been the Southern heavyweight champion for six months straight, undefeated, and all of those shows are showing up there in Lexington. So, you know, I'm fine find out that uh, that I'm a star there. I didn't really think about the fact that uh, when I go to Lexington to work for him, that I'm going to be meaningful for him. But I was more than meaningful for him. <laughs> so, uh, it, like I said, the, what I remember most about the card was was how I the response of the crowd. Uh, so. <clears throat> 
when I put the belt on Stomper, uh, Carson Carson had seen that same TV. Oh, why wow, he'd been on that same television program all the time, basically a little bit after my time frame, but uh, way on up into November of '75. So when Carson went to the ring first, after he rang the bell for our match, fans booed him like crazy. I listened to the response, uh, and I was really amazed. I was like, wow, man, Carson's really over here. But he had appeared there many times. He'd even worked in that building before. I didn't realize what I that what kind of star I was in Lexington until that night. When I appeared from behind a big old giant curtain there that separated fans from the dressing room area, the roof came off the building. I was like, wow, geez, <laughs> this is amazing. And uh, so I go in the ring, and uh, Carson and I, we tear the house down that night. It, it was the best match of the night by far. Uh, and uh, my brother couldn't believe the ovation I got uh, <laughs> when when we started to ride back home together in, to Knoxville. We drove up there, and we drove back. And on the way back, he talked to me about it. He says, damn, man, I, I can't believe the ovation you got. Uh, how are you that over there? And I said, well, man, I've, I'm obviously been on a lot of shows for Jared. I've just never worked in that building. So uh, the big story here is basically, I guess, the power of the territory's television programs back in the old school times, man. Uh, it was a tremendous way to get talent over and to build these large crowds in every building where they could see your TV program. Uh, it was television television was having a remarkable impact on fans and uh, and it's what wrestling was tv wrestling was doing in those days it was filling buildings for for territories across the country because of their television shows people were very interested in television unlike i gotta admit unlike today's standards you know uh you think, pay me today that people are watching, a lot more people are watching television than they were back in the territory days. There is no way that it, that's a, that's a fact. Uh, no, no possible way that's a fact. Uh, I finished my commitment to Jared on the last two shows in Memphis on December 15th and the 21st of 1975. The show of December 15th was a one-night tournament for the Southern Heavyweight Championship that I had held for six months uh, the year before, basically, starting about a year earlier than than this night. Uh, I worked twice that night. I beat Bob Roop in the first go-around, and I lost in the finals to Jerry Lawler. Uh, Jerry put me up against the champion Lawler the following Monday night again as I came back for a rematch, and this time it was for the Southern title. Uh, both crowds in Memphis were over 10,000. Gosh, and this is in December. Tremendous houses for that time of year. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, I'm, I was moving away from wrestling for other companies in order to totally, totally focus on my building, my own company at this time frame. In fact, I'm moving away so fast that I'm looked up my, my, my record of all the places that I wrestled. And i I found out that in 1976, I'm only going to work for Jerry Jarrett two times. I'm only going to work two times in St. Louis for Sam Muchnick. I'm going to work one show in Amarillo, Texas for the Funks. And every other match I have in 1976 is going to be with my own company, Southeastern Wrestling. Uh, and I'm going to follow this path for much of the rest of my career. Ron, let me ask you a question. 
you know, here you discuss working with uh, with Jerry Jarrett, and both you and Jerry are, you know, what I consider to be Hall of Fame caliber promoters. Just long, long histories uh, of of doing a great job. Tell me what you think as you reflect back when you worked for Jerry Jarrett. Uh, what you thought the similarities in promoting style that you had with him and what were some differences where as you're, you know, you're a talent in the dressing room and you hear he's doing something and you go, ah, I don't think I would have gone that way. So tell me the differences and the similarities between you and Jerry Jarrett as promoters. Well, I think the similarities is, is we both had a same style of booking. We wanted to have good crews from top to bottom. Uh, we wanted to involve more than ju- just one match as a as a, a draw for the fans, uh, and he always had good talent. Uh, he recognized good talent. Uh, he was a good booker that uh, came up with great angles, uh, and I think you know uh, that was a basic similarity between the two of us. I probably uh, tended to lean toward more wrestling than Jerry did. Uh, and sometimes it's hard for me to say that honestly, because, you know, uh, there was a lot of times I had a lot of blood, uh, on, on some occasions and, but Jerry did too at the same time, but I had I always had, I think basically from my Florida background and starting and spending my first four years in the Florida territory where Jack Briscoe and guys like that were the were the focus of the territory and wrestling was the name on the marquee. And it was the name once you got in the building as well. And I kind of wanted to, to ride that horse, you know, uh, I believed in it and I, and I kind of wanted to stick with it. Okay. Please continue. Okay. Uh, let's look at the, the last two Knoxville shows in December of 1975. That's where we are in this time frame. Uh, Christmas night's the first Knoxville card, uh, Run in the month of 1975. Uh, we didn't run anything after the 28th of November until Christmas night. Uh, I did not believe, as Jerry obviously did, that, that we could do really well in the early weeks of December. It was only my second December as a promoter and owner. And uh, I had the first December was very difficult for me to draw. And it made me think that this second one was going to be just as hard. Yeah, I could have maybe gone ahead and run those towns. But I really wanted to focus on small towns during the month of December. I had all these towns ready to go, and I, I didn't have the nights for them. And I, would, I said, man, I want to hit all these little spot shows that I have arranged and ready to go and uh, see if I can't pop them some. I was able to put better cards in those spot shows than I would have been had I run Knoxville in the same week. So that made some sense, I thought. So we come back there on Christmas night. Uh, I did not run in Christmas night in 1974. Uh, it was the first Christmas after I bought Knoxville. Uh, to be honest, I didn't know that John Kazana had ever run there on Christmas. And I found out uh, later that he had run on Christmas night. And uh, uh, yeah, I would have probably uh, run Christmas night in 1974. But uh, I really was just getting my feet wet. Uh, you know, I just bought into a company I, I'd never booked before, and I certainly never been an owner of a company. And I was really struggling early 74, uh, I mean, late 74, just after I bought in and started out uh, my own company at uh, getting it off the ground. 
So it was a great night to have wrestling. It didn't, Christmas night was a fabulous night to have wrestling in any any others or any other sports event. Didn't have to be wrestling. You could do it with basketball. Look at what they do today. You see it now in this time frame. Basketball is loaded up on Christmas. Uh, football likes to run their Christmas games. I mean, it is just a tradition in America to, to do sporting events on holidays. Uh, fans have been home all day visiting with their relatives and families, and uh, and they're all looking for something to do about dark. You know, they've spent a lot of time together, and you know, uh, they've talked about everything they can think of. Uh, you know, it just seems like it makes sense to to go out and buy a ticket into an event, take your family and take your friends, and enjoy that favorite sport you have. And, it, and it's kind of like the perfect way to end the day together, a big Christmas day. So I took advantage of that best I could. Uh, this was the Knoxville Christmas card on Thursday night, December 25th, 1975. It's not on the traditional Friday night. It's on Thursday night, but it's Christmas. So, you know, it's it's going to do better than a Friday will. The only problem with running on Christmas was usually getting enough wrestlers willing to work for you on Christmas night. Opening match that night was Dennis Hall versus Bill Bowman. Um, my grandfather's brother, Lester Welch's two sons, were making their first appearance in Southeastern against Jerry Myatt and Tony Peters. It was the first night of the Southeastern Heavyweight Championship Tournament that would, within the next six weeks, decide who is the Southeastern Heavyweight Champion. Uh, there were two tournament matches that night. And when you lost any tournament match, you were automatically out of the tournament, unless there was some type of double disqualification, something funky happened that would cause you to maybe give people another opportunity. Uh, fan favorite Jimmy Golan is returning that night after being gone for more than four months. And he's in the first tournament match of Southeastern history for the belt, for the new belt against Tiny York. There's a second Southeastern Championship tournament match on that card. It's my brother, Robert, against Don Carson. The main event was me and Ron Wright taking on Norvell Austin and Big Butch Malone, managed by General Homer Odell. Uh, they are champions at this point, but uh, they are not defending their championship against us. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the TV of Saturday, December 20th. Uh, and the two that were prior to that, because there's no wrestling in Knoxville, we had three television programs to build for Christmas night. It opened up with Jimmy Golden's return. So the, I'm just going to talk about the third TV right before Christmas night, Saturday, December 20th. It's the key program to advertise and promote the Christmas night event. Uh, Jimmy Golden's return to Southeastern, as mentioned, getting a win over the former Inferno, Rocky Smith, uh, with a beautiful dropkick off the top rope in the first match of that card, of that uh, television program, and, uh, and a fantastic instant replay of it. Gosh almighty, man, he was so high when he came off the top rope that, that it looked like he almost missed, he almost went over his head with both feet. But he did connect with one of them, and uh, it was really impressive. Jimmy did the interview after after uh, 
getting uh, after this match, and he and he's welcomed back, obviously by Les Thatcher to the to the set. The fans applaud his return, and Jimmy jumped on the Southeastern tournament right away. He talked about coming back, especially for the tournament. How his first opponent, Tiny York, was a really tough wrestler, and he could see how this tournament was going to be a very difficult one to win because the talent here at that point was much better than it was when he left there four months earlier, which it certainly was. I mean, I kept trying to improve constantly the talent uh, for five years straight, not just for for, for five months. Uh, Less through the interview to Studio 3 to Tiny York. Uh, York was a good talent in the ring and a pretty darn good talker. He bragged about winning it all and the brand-new beautiful Southeastern belt. When the camera returned to the set, Les had that new belt sitting in front of him and Golan. It was made, the belt was made by one of the best wrestling belt makers of all time, Reggie Parks. I don't know if y'all are familiar with him, but uh, he was a master wrestling belt maker. And he would do most of the belts for Southeastern, Continental, and my USA wrestling over the next 13 years. Uh, I really loved his work and uh, and I, I liked it. I wanted to stay with him, and uh, I never saw any belts that I felt looked better than than what we had. But Ron, now here, here's a guy that I think sort of, in a lot of ways, wrestling history has forgotten, and that's Reggie Parks, who, by the way, had a really nice career before he started making belts, but he was a guy that crossed all sort of promotional lines because I, I don't know that there are any promotions that didn't reach out to Reg because that's how well uh, thought of he was as a belt maker. Yeah. I thought he was the one of the best. Uh, well, I thought he was the best. You know, I was out to get my belts made by the best. And I looked out and I started getting them made pretty early. Uh, this first one was Southeastern was made for him. And he made belts for me, like I said, for 13 years, uh, so, sure. so what was the, what was the, uh, the way you approached it? Like, did you give him a basic thought process of, okay, this is what I would like it to look like, or did he come up with a design and present it to you? I never suggested anything to Reg. You know, I said, this, this company is named Southeastern. This is going to be the heavyweight champion, uh, uh, row with it, Reggie, you know, and, uh, gosh, he, he would send me these, these photos and pictures of it. And, you know, and then I could make recommendations one way or another. But as far as, you know, to, trying to lead him into making something that I wanted, I wanted to see what he wanted because he was so good at it. Okay. And as the- you say, as you say, Jeff, you're right. He did have a tremendous wrestling career. He wasn't yeah. just a belt maker. That's for no, sure. Absolutely. Okay. The next match. Yeah. The second match was another tag team match never before seen on Southeastern wrestling. Another team that had never been seen there. It was, it was two more members of the huge wrestling, the Welch wrestling family, my own family, uh, Jack and Roy Lee Welch against Jerry Myatt and newcomer tiny York. And before we talk about this match, I want to talk to fans about an idea I have for the regular weekly stud cast beginning after the next episode. When we actually start looking at Knoxville's Southeastern wrestling in 1976, because of the thousands of requests I get from Studcast fans worldwide uh, asking for me to uh, to do more history, uh, talk more about uh, uh, my knowledge and uh, and my my background so far as how uh, how built companies and that type of thing. 
So because of this thousands request, I'm, I'm going to slightly change the format, my usual format for the studcast in 1976, once we started in 1976. And I want to change it by including a short segment at the end of every studcast that I'm going to call a sitting under the studs learning tree. Each show is going to end with an educational element for all fans of the history of the sport. Uh, and I'm going to basically talk about the how and the why and the what made old school wrestling work. In fact, I'm going to finish today's studcast with the first ever learning tree. A based segment today is going to be based upon this tag team of the Welches, Jack and Roy Lee Welch, and how they and their father fit into wrestling history, especially as a, how it pertains to Florida, Florida wrestling, uh, the Florida wrestling territory in particular. So, but first, let's talk about this second match on the TV that was promoting the Christmas night match of 75. It was a very good match. Jack and Roy looked like they did back in 1971 when they were a team in Florida territory, where I was also working at that time. They made fast tags in and out and working the same body parts of their opponents. Uh, what they were displaying was the same classic tag team wrestling as the generation of Welches before them. That the guys, Roy and Herb and, and Jack, uh, that actually invented tag team wrestling. So, you know, I mean, uh, wrestling, tag team wrestling came from the Welches, and these guys made it look like that way. Uh, you know, the fans in the studio reacted wildly to their style, and it made me proud just watching to be a Welch. At the finish of the match, the fans were really into it when Roy Lee was finally able to tag his brother. And Jack started a big comeback that ended with both brothers applying their father's finish hold, the standing abdominal stretch, old time move that they don't use much anymore, fabulous looking hold and fabulous shooting hold. It was a very painful hold. It worked. Both opponents submitted quickly and the studio audience fell in love with this new team in their very first Southeastern victory. They went straight to the set uh, with Les uh, after he'd shown the instant replay, and they and he called for the two-minute break. After the break, Les welcomed them to Southeastern Wrestling, and being the consummate professional, brought to everyone's attention the fact that they had just acquired their victory with their father's Lester Welch's favorite finishing move. Les knew it because he'd been beat by Lester many times with that same move. Les also pointed out to fans that Lester had been a huge star along with his brothers Roy in East Tennessee for more than 40 years. So, you know, it, it gave those guys credence. It gave, them, uh, it gave them some notoriety right off the bat because of their name and because of who had been there before them. They talked about their upcoming match on Christmas night and how their father had loved to wrestle in this part of the country. It was not a long interview but it was a very successful one. I could tell from the applause they got as they left the set after only one match so far. Uh, it was amazing. I, I was not happy with the fact I'd already filled most holes in my babyface crew before I knew they were even available. So basically they're coming in and working for me. It's on a Christmas night and around that Christmas time when I can't get talent, but uh, I would have loved to have been able to bring them in and keep them there. 
but I'd already committed to some other baby faces. Their appearances are going to be very infrequent, but their popularity is going to be very strong. Personality profile. The next new heel team sensation, Norvell Austin, Butch Malone, and their manager, General Homer Odell. They had already won the Tennessee Tag Championship, as I said, from Ron Wright and Robert in Harlan, Kentucky, during the month of December when we were not, weren't even wrestling in Knoxville. Uh, I felt it was important to have that title change in smaller cities because I wanted fans to know that you never know when the title's going to change. Uh, so once they see it changes in the smaller city, it just makes those fans that we're going to really depend on in 1976 as we're growing in a lot of these small cities in eastern Tennessee uh, and up into Kentucky and into Virginia to for fans to show up they're thinking that they're going to see a title change. And, and we made it happen a whole lot of times. It also helped establish Harlan. It's one of the best cities outside Knoxville to draw crowds of 3,000 or more people in one high school gymnasium. The champions stood tall behind Homer with their white Tennessee tag belts over their shoulders, and Homer ranted about his new champions and their fantastic future as a team. Uh, you could see the pride in the three of them as Homer you know, they had been working out in Chill Howie Park's ring down there during the week, uh, practicing with each other and getting better as a team. And you could see that they were they were proud of what they were doing. I was proud to see how they were wrestling. Uh, you know, so you, the, Homer just kept warning all the challenger to be aware of my boys because they're nasty as I am. You know, they needed to be. They better be since they had a non-title match on Christmas night. And that's going to be with the former Tennessee tag champions, Ron Wright and myself. The profile was very good, especially since Les went into detail about Homer's accomplishments as a manager other than this team. He talked about Homer managing great talent from Buddy Colt to Skandor Akbar. Uh, you could almost see Homer blow up like a big frog as Les was putting him over. I mean, he just puffed that chest out there and that big belly and then them lips punched, pooched out. I mean, he was a real proud boy sitting there on that personality profile. Third match on that card was Don Carson. The TV was Don Carson against Tommy Rich. What a good match, right? Carson came to the ring after Rich was introduced and he brought the beautiful TV championship trophy that he'd won from Tommy Sigler with him and he set it down in the middle of the ring even though it wasn't a match for the TV championship. Phil Rainey, the announcer, mistakenly, or maybe he just did it as a rib for Carson, announced that the match was for the TV championship. And uh, Carson went straight to him. He stopped him, man, right away. Uh, you know, wouldn't let him make any further announcement. In fact, he took the microphone away from him, and he took over as usual. He made it plain to everyone that this wasn't supposed to be a TV title match and that this little piss ant, he said, pointing at Phil Rainey, uh, was not well informed and, and he pushed, very, pushed poor little Rainey back into a ring corner and got in his face. Well, business was about to pick up very fast because Tommy Rich came up behind him and tapped him on the shoulder and when Carson spun around, uh, Tommy knocked him on his butt, man, with a big old right hand. The crowd popped. And one hell of a match was immediately in progress when the ref rang that bell. 
Wildfire became just that as he was all over Carson until Carson, the old wily veteran, made his opponent look great before ending the match with his loaded black glove and Tommy was carried to the dressing room. Uh, Carson carried his trophy to the set and he waited with less until the commercial break was done. When it was time for the interview, he started with his having won the $3,500 from Robert in Knoxville uh, way back on the 28th of November, almost a month earlier. And now the two of them were in a first-round tournament match for the Southeastern Heavyweight Championship on Christmas night. Les made him angry when he tossed the interview to Robert in Studio 3. Just as Carson was getting warmed up, <laughs> Robert was holding the new Southeastern belt, and Les had been displaying the one he had been displaying on the set most of the show. Robert made comments about the beautiful belt and how much it would mean to his career if he won it. Carson was livid as the camera returned to him and Les. He started to scream at Les about why that punk was holding my belt, and the studio audience went crazy booing him. Les tried to be polite, but Carson was on fire. He accused Les of being biased against him and as ignorant as the hillbillies out there watching. The time was running out for the interview, and Les started closing it out as Carson kept screaming in his face. It was exactly what fans were going to see over the next year as Don Carson uh, tried to run the show every television. His heat was undeniable after just six weeks in Southeastern. Uh, before the year of 1975 is going to end, he's going to be setting all-time records in that city. The last match was Bill Bowman and Tony Peters versus a team that had not wrestled together in almost four months, Ron Wright and myself. Between the two of us, we gave the studio audience and those people at home everything it could have wanted. The entire TV had been excellent, and this was a great finish to the show as Wright pinned Peters, and I put the fuller leg lock on Connors at the same time. The studio was electric as we made the last interview about our non-title shot at the new General Homer Odell team. I really couldn't wait for Christmas night just to see how well we we're going to do. Ron, there are some guys when you see them in the in the wrestling ring and they're just starting out, they sort of have that it factor. You can really tell. And you were just talking about Don Carson facing a very young Tommy Rich who may have been in the business for a year at this point. At this point, could you really see that Tommy Rich had that it factor or did he, was he still working his way through the, the young status? Well, I mean, when your first year in is as a pro, uh, you never you you're never going to be even close to what your potential is. But Tommy had Tommy had that fire in him uh, from the very beginning, and uh, fire when you're a babyface is critical. I mean, the more fire you have in your comeback, the best the better you're going to get that crowd out there. They're going to get behind you, uh, and you know, you could see that at about the end of his first year that uh, this kid is going to have a big future. Uh, you didn't know, uh, had no idea he's going to have the future he had. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he, when I, when I used him every time I could get him, that's the way I felt about him. I, I, I didn't get him a lot of times for house shows because he wasn't available. But if I could ever get him for a television, he was absolutely wonderful for putting over heels for you because he fired and fought back so good uh, that what happened is 
the heel ends up beating somebody when they beat a kid like that. It's not just they go out there and the kid never does anything and he doesn't make any type of impression on the fans and bang, he beaten right in the middle of the ring. It's easy win. Uh, Tommy Rich was never an easy win for a heel and that always made heels look good. I think that's what I say. And this, that what I got, the, the point I got here is uh, that Don Carson got himself over by giving Tommy Rich great comeback. And uh, that made a big difference. Okay, let's take a break here. And when we come back, Ron, you can give us the results of the Christmas night card. We now join David Summers for some words about the fantastic new exotic Adrian Street Super Stud Cat. The entire globe is fascinated with the strange wrestler from Wales. The stud has done some unique super stud casts, but never one like this at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. If you're a true fan of the sport and looking for a wrestler that is old school and different, then look no further than super stud cast number 24 featuring exotic Adrian Street, the most unusual performer ever to don tights or a gown. He was a shooter feared by other wrestlers never knowing if he was going to hurt them or kiss them no matter who your favorite wrestler was he had to respect a little man from wales that won titles all over the world the christmas season is perfect for this three-hour ride with the stud into the unbelievable life of this unique human being remarkable part one is now available and the story continues with adrian again in part two available on new year's eve at tnstud.com or patreon.com Studcast. Only $2.99. Saddle up for a super ride into wrestling history. Okay, Ron. So what were the results of Christmas night 1975? Uh, Dennis Hall beat Bill Bowman. Uh, Jack and Roy Lee Welch basically destroyed Jerry Mott and Tony Peters. I mean, there was there was not much match to be had there. And and those two Welch boys uh, at this point are are really getting their game together uh, there. And uh, we'll talk a little bit later in the show about what's actually happening in their lives during this time frame, which is uh, pretty remarkable. They have not been in wrestling for a while. Uh, uh, Jimmy Golden won the first Southeastern Wrestling Heavyweight Championship tourney- tournament match against Tiny York. Don Carson and Robert were both disqualified, but... Because they were both disqualified, they were able to compete again in the tournament because of a disqualification. Ron Wright and I won the non-title match for the Tennessee Tag Championship from the champions Norvell Austin and Butch Malone, managed by Homer Odell. Uh, It was a great match. Fans really got into it. They loved the fact that we won the match, and it obviously is going to lead to a title match, uh, as most uh, wins like that over non, non with non-title matches turn into title matches soon. The crowd was about 3,200 fans. That was a just about entirely full uh, old Jacobs Buildings. It was it was called the Jacobs Building at Chilhowee Park, uh, and that's after I'd added. I kept adding seats everywhere I could in that building. I'm just about to the absolute capacity of the building. And it's at 3,200 fans that night. The gross house was $9,600. The total payroll was about $2,700. The bottom seven guys on the card, Hall and Bowman, Myatt, Peters, the two Welch brothers, and the referee got $130 each. Uh, Golden and York got 150 
and Wright and Austin, Malone, Homer, Robert, Carson, and myself. And I did take a payoff on this one. Got $200 each. Uh, not a bad night. Uh, we're somewhat limited by the building, but the building did not sell out. We did not turn people away. Uh, I considered it to be a pretty successful evening. Four days later, on Sunday, December 28th, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, we're going to be back in that same building again. Uh, we could only do that because we had the TV show of Saturday, December 27th, to advertise this house show the following afternoon. Uh, this was the card for that Sunday afternoon, uh, which is going to be December 28th, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, in the Chilhowie Bark building. Uh, this uh, Rocky Smith is going to wrestle in the first match against Jerry Myatt. Robert Fuller is going to wrestle Tony York. Jack and Roy Lee Welch are going to wrestle against the returning superstars, uh, which they had made a tremendous impression a few weeks earlier with uh, another one of my relatives, Bobby Fields, who came out of the Gulf Coast territory. Uh, and I just want to take a second to announce that a couple of weeks ago, I thought I had established who the superstars were because I couldn't remember their names. But I was wrong about that. And uh, and the gentleman out of Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, reminded me on social media of exactly who they were. And, and as soon as he told me this, I, it jogged my memory. And I, I was like, oh, heck, how could I have forgotten it? They were both great friends with Don Carson. They lived in the same complex in Knoxville with him. And, uh, and, and the gentleman that contacted me lived in that same complex. Uh, they were a great team, as I'd remembered them. I, I remembered them being a great team, and I, and I apologized to them that I didn't remember who they were. But this team actually was Dick Dunn, a former partner of Don Carson. And Dick Dunn's partner was nobody, so, none other than to uh, the the uh, Alabama Wonder Man, I'd have to call him, uh, Leon Tarzan Baxter. So Dick Dunn and Tarzan Baxter were the superstars for me. And uh, Carson and Dunn had great history together. Uh, my very first match I ever wrestled was against that team, Dick Carson, Dick Dunn, Don Carson. And uh, the, other, the other guy, uh, you know, Dick Dunn was trained by my father in the late 50s. And uh, the other guy, uh, Tarzan Baxter, was also trained by my father in the late 50s. Um, and uh, they were both from L.A. And I don't mean Los Angeles. I mean they were from lower Alabama. Uh, <laughs> and, the, and these guys could go. I'm telling you, both these guys could sh not only shoot, but uh, they were great workers in the ring and, and great talkers too. It's going to be my – they're going to be my second tag team through much of 1976. They're both very close friends of Carson's. And that made that fact even clear, uh, clear to me uh, as soon as he described, you know, they lived there with Carson. Since they lived in that same complex, it just eliminated all doubt to me as to who these guys were. Fourth match was another Southeastern Championship tournament match with Jimmy Golden versus Don Carson. The main event was a return tag match, this time for the Tennessee Tag Championship with the champions Norvell Austin and Butch Malone, managed by General Homer O'Dell, defending their titles this time against me and Ron Wright. Uh, and uh, we're uh, looking forward to that one. 
we know that that's going to be a tremendous match. Brock, can I jump in here? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, first of all, I want to apologize uh, for giving out false information last week about the uh, actual identity of the superstars. That's uh, that's on me. I apologize. Uh, I did want to ask you a question. Uh, going back to you were talking about the very top of that or the bottom of the card when you had Rocky Smith versus Jerry Myatt. Now, my question to you was regarding Rocky Smith. Rocky Smith, as you mentioned, was a part of a tag team called the Infernos, who were a really good team. So as a promoter, when you start up the promotion, you bring in Rocky Smith, a guy that's obviously had some history in the industry, but you really aren't planning on putting him anywhere on top. He's going to be a guy on, let's just say, the lower part of the card. Okay, How do you, as a promoter, make the guy who's now at the point in his career where he's no longer going to be main eventing, how do you let him know that you want him as a talent, but you're never going to be in a position where he's going to be main eventing for you? Well, that's a really good question. And under... Under other circumstances, it would have been very, very difficult. Rocky just happened to have been older, and he had retired in uh, Johnson City, Tennessee. So, you know, he's 100 miles away from me. I really didn't bring him in. He just wanted to work for me. You know, he had, he had, his career was pretty much done. He had done what he wanted to do, and uh, and you're right. He was a part of that uh, Inferno team. He was the guy with the loaded boot, and uh, he was really, really spectacular during his day. But it's past his day. He's living 100 miles away. He's looking to make a little extra money every once in a while, and I'm glad to use him on the cards because he's still a great worker. And, and the really good thing about it was he could wrestle without his mask, and be Rocky Smith, a baby face, or I could use him under a hood and uh, use him as someone other than Inferno, and nobody will know. <laughs> I mean, you know, you, you've got a baby face and a heel out of the same guy, and fans never know the difference between him with, that, with a mask or him without the mask. They cannot tell that he is that mask man that they're seeing. So uh, that, uh, that worked out really good for me. Uh, as a matter of fact, and and he was always amenable to working with me and getting guys over. And, and, and that's so important as a booker. If you don't have people that do great jobs for your talent, you're going to have a hard time drawing because you can't get those guys over. So the TV to promote this one uh, was seen the day before. And we're going to wrestle on Sunday afternoon. The TV runs on Saturday, the 27th, and on Sunday afternoon, the 28th, the very next afternoon, we're going to be back in that building wrestling again. The first TV match on the 27th was the Superstars, this team we're just talking about against Tommy Gilbert and Tommy Rich. Now, that's a pretty darn good team right there, too. Uh and uh, what a great match they had, man. <laughs> the superstars were great workers. And when they had this type of team to work with, they were absolutely phenomenal. This match went almost 20 minutes on television. Long time for a TV match. But it absolutely tore the studio audience apart. Uh, when the superstars won the match, they went to the desk with Les. After the commercial break, they jumped on their opponents for the next afternoon, Jack and Roy Lee Welch made some really good remarks, I thought, about, uh, you know, Welches. And, uh, you know, that uh, how many other Welches are they? And, you know, they really got down on the Welch family. 
and uh, they were knocking, you know, they, you know, they, they're the biggest, but they've been beat the most, you know, they made all the appropriate comments, but uh, they did a great interview uh, when it came to, to Jack and Roy. Uh, let's split the time between them and Jack and Roy in Studio 3. And uh, Jack and Roy held her own. You know, they were able to hear the comments of the other guys in another studio, and they were able to answer it back. And, uh, you know, tell them, hey, if you think we're weak and we're not going to be any challenge to you, uh, we can't wait for tomorrow afternoon. We're going to all find out, won't we? So uh, great interviews from both of them. And it was the perfect start to another television program. Second match was Jimmy Golden against Tony Peters. And Jimmy made short work of Tony Peters. And, uh, and he beat him with another one of those beautiful drop kicks off the top rope. Gosh, man, I love watching Jimmy do that. Uh, and then uh, before he joined Robert, after the, after his win, you know, that big drop kick to show the instant replay, he goes to the set and Rob's there waiting for him. Uh, and they talk about uh, his, his second Southeastern. Rob talks about his second Southeastern Championship tournament match uh, after another challenger had won his first tournament match, Don Carson. So, uh it was only the turn. It was the only tournament match on the card that week. Jimmy was excited because he's in that match. Rob is not in this match against Carson. Rob's going to have another opportunity as well because him and Carson have been disqualified. But Jimmy's got that shot at Carson, and Rob's just really excited for him and and wishing him well. And uh, and uh, it was a great interview, you know. Um, they they talked about. Then Rob got touched on his match with Tiny York. But the emphasis was on this Southeastern Championship tournament and that match between Jimmy Golden and Don Carson. Personality profile was the other new team in Southeastern wrestling, the superstars. Uh, Les took them back via video to the last Knoxville match that one of them had had on November 28, 1975, which was about a month earlier. And there was only one superstar in the territory at that time. Uh, and that superstar was wrestling against Bobby Fields. They'd had a bloody encounter on TV, a bloody encounter in the Coliseum. And uh, then they've got a match head to head, the one superstar against Bobby Fields. And for the first time ever at the end of that match, a second superstar arrives at the ring and it shows him joining his partner illegally, obviously to really destroy Bobby Fields that night. They, you know, they, they left Bobby laying. I mean, they beat the hell out of him. Uh, and they were, they were pretty tough guys. I mean, uh, Tarzan Baxter was really a tough guy and, uh, worked real stiff and close. So, you know, they, they, they hurt Bobby a little bit and, uh, and he was still injured a month later. <laughs> the fact that the superstars, superstars knew about, and they bragged about it. You know, we hurt this guy and he's still not in the ring. Unless had a hard time discussing their lifestyle and the normal things that we, he would discuss in a personality profile because they wanted to focus on Bobby Fields and uh, who had oddly enough been an opponent of both of theirs for years in the Gulf Coast territory where all three of them called home. They all were from down in that part of the country along the Gulf Coast uh, there in uh, Florida Panhandle, uh, southern Alabama. It was another very interesting profile. Uh, and it was different than most of them. I liked it. 
It, it, would, it didn't come across as all the rest. They got off on subjects that Les didn't want them to go into, but at the same time, they covered a lot of ground, and I thought it was very good. These guys had a future in Southeastern. <laughs> I recognized that fact during that profile. I really did not expect to use them like I was going to, but I started to see that this team has real legs. They can, they can take us somewhere. Third match was Jack and Roy Lee Welch against Tiny York and Dennis Condry. Another two good workers. Uh, another great tag, too. Uh, not just the studio enjoyed it, but everyone at home had to love it as well. The, the Welch boys looked good and ready for their first encounter with the superstars the following day. Uh, Norvell, Malone, and Homer joined Les at the set after that match, and Les couldn't wait to show their loss to Ron Wright and myself from the Friday before, from the Christmas before, which was just four days earlier. Homer wanted no part of it, and he kept demanding that they, they stop the video from Christmas. We don't want to see that video. Uh, Les would not relent. And Homer became more angry as the video proceeded. When it was finished, Homer asked Les if he knew who they were going to be wrestling next on the very next match on the television show. Les said, no, I don't know who your team is, is against uh, next. And uh, Homer says, uh, one of them is a right. <laughs> so Les asked, do you mean Ron Wright? Don Wright? Yeah, first he said, do you mean Ron Wright? And he and and Homer says no, and Les says, "Do you mean Don Wright?" And Homer said, "That's exactly right, and we are going to make an example of him to everyone that thinks that we're not tough as we ought to be. We're going to we're going to hurt our first guy ever here today, and we're going to do it right here on this television program. Uh, the stage was set, obviously, for the la for the last match on TV." Uh, and in that last match, Homer and his team were announced by Phil. Uh, sure enough, Don Wright's announced next, and his partner was Rocky Smith. Now, these two were both from the Tri-Cities areas around Kingsport, Johnson City, Bristol. Uh, the fans definitely had their favorites, but Homer and his boys were getting better each week. They took it to the wrestlers from the Tri-Cities, boy. I mean, they really went after Rocky Smith and also Don Wright. Uh and then uh, they got real heat uh, and, you know, beat the heck out of Rocky Smith, who finally made a tag to Don Wright. But he was so tired and hurt, he fell through the ropes onto the concrete floor of the studio, and he never got up. You know, and I, I, I think it was really hurt. I didn't expect that to happen, but he just stayed down. So Don Wright tore into both of Homer's men and was holding his own until Malone drew the ref's attention away from the ring. Homer jumped up on the apron beside, behind the referee's back, and he lowered that old steel helmet. He had it strapped under his chin real tight uh, under the top rope for Norvell to run Don Wright's head into. Norvell did, and the blood flew across the ring. And, man, it was, it was, it was big time. Homer jumped back down before the ref saw him, and his two boys took it from there. Don Wright quickly became a bloody mess, but still fought back until he couldn't stand up. His partner, as I said, was still down on the floor. By this point, the crowd was going crazy as both Austin and Malone took turns pulling Don Wright up before the referee could count him out. When Ron Wright and I hit the studio, everyone in the building was on their feet. 
Ron took off after the three of them while I went and checked on his brother. The ref stopped the match, and Les went to a commercial break. When the camera banged back to the set, Ron Wright and I were both standing up behind Les as everyone in the studio was still standing. Uh, we were both had an opportunity to have our say about what was going to happen tomorrow afternoon, including old Ron promising a Tennessee dog whooping. You know it's going to happen. So, uh, you know, and I'm standing there with my arm around his shoulder saying, heck yeah, Ron, let's get him. You know, so crowd almost drowned us out entirely in the interview. They were so loud. Uh, it was wild. And then wild always means a big crowd in a building. And uh, couldn't hardly wait to see what the hell was going to happen when we got there the, the next afternoon. Okay, so what were the results of the show, Ron? Well, Rocky Smith beat Jerry Might in the first match. Uh, Robert beat Tony York. Jack and Roy Welch had a 30-minute time limit spectacular draw with the superstars. Uh, everybody in that building was on their feet. Uh, I mean, it was a fantastic tag match. One that just, uh, you want to see it again and again. Uh, they're going to come back, obviously, uh, in a longer time limit match. Uh, Don Carson and Jimmy Golden are both disqualified for hitting the ref, and uh, they would be able to come back still in the tournament because they had been disqualified. Uh, but it was going to be the last chance. You didn't get to go the three times getting disqualified. Uh, you were going to be out at, if you got disqualified again. Uh, so it's the last chance for for one of them uh, to, to advance in the tournament. And uh, so, and the tag match for the Tennessee tag titles finished in the same fashion as the last match of, on TV the day before. Pandemonium. <laughs> I mean, uh, Don Wright showed up even though he wasn't even on the card. And the tag match went, went totally out of control when Don Wright came down to the ring and the fans just went crazy in the building. They absolutely loved it. It was kind of like what they had seen for years and years, that old blood and guts that, that was there when I came to Knoxville. And uh, they got a lot of that in this particular tag match. How was the crowd and uh, what were the payoffs? Well, the crowd was almost identical to Christmas crowd, around 3,200 people, uh, full. Not turn away, but full. Uh, gross house was pretty much exactly the same, about 96, or close to 10,000. And uh, payoffs were 2,700 again. Uh, the bottom seven guys, Jack and Roy, Welch, the superstars, Smith and Myatt and the ref got 130 each. Robert and York got 150, and uh, Golden and Carson and Wright and Austin, Malone, Homer, and I, I took another payoff myself. We all got 200 each. And as I mentioned earlier in the show today, I want to introduce a new segment to all the Studcast fans that I will be regularly doing each episode as we enter Southeastern's 1976. That's going to be uh, after the next program. Uh, that we're going to be doing these on a weekly basis. And this will be the first ever one that I'm about to do uh, that I call Sitting Under the Studs Learning Tree. And uh, I hope everybody's going to enjoy this one. We're going to talk a little bit today. Uh, I'm going to do this one by introducing some very unusual history between the Florida Territory and our Southeastern Territory in Pensacola 
in the in the eighties. Uh, I'm going to tie in Lester's Lester Welch's part of the family uh, with the Florida Territory and how Jack and Roy, and especially Jack and I, uh, were related to each other in that Florida Territory. Uh, Jack and Roy Lee were in the same generation as Robert and Jimmy and I. Uh, they'd been trained by their father, Lester, during his years in Florida, when Lester, when Lester owned part of the Florida Territory with Eddie Graham. From 1966 until 1971, Lester had a part of that Florida Territory, and he had trained his boys there, and uh, they were stars there for a little while. Uh, my father traded... Uh, in 19, his Georgia stock, which he owned uh, in this same time frame back in the late 60s into early 70s, he traded his Georgia stock for Lester stock in the Florida Territory in 1972. The Atlanta Russing War started soon after that trade. Uh, Lester was then uh, in business with Ann Gunkel and Ray Gunkel uh, originally. Ray died. Uh, from a heart punch, uh, or he died after a match with Ox Baker in Savannah, Georgia. And uh, two, three months later, there's a second territory in in Georgia. And uh, it it's what a tremendous war. A great story in itself. And uh, we may get to some of that uh, as we go, as we go uh, through these uh, learning trees, I like to call them. Uh, so they had both trained uh, the, with their father, Lester, during those years. Uh, and then 1971, 72, my dad makes a stock trade uh, and leaves Georgia. Lester uh, comes to Georgia and uh, my dad goes to Florida. They just swapped not just stocks in the company, but they swapped houses and horses and farms. And, <laughs> you know, they, they it was a fabulous uh, swap uh, never probably no one's ever been around that type of uh, thing happening when which uh, two relatives just decide i want to get out of atlanta and to tampa and the other one says i want to get out of tampa and to atlanta and they trade everything so the atlanta war starts soon after that trade uh, lester sold his georgia stock eventually in 1973 to jim barnett and both he and roy lee went into the coal business in Tennessee. Uh, Jack, who was Lester's oldest son, had the same position in Tallahassee that I had in West Palm Beach. Uh, we were both local promoters for the Florida Territory, him in Tallahassee, me in West Palm. Uh, the Florida Territory had made a huge investment in Tallahassee. They built a, a building there, a venue for wrestling there in 1970 that was used for other events as well. Jack, Jack Welch, uh, my cousin, had responsibilities far beyond what I had in West Palm because he also was responsible for operating the building uh, when the other events wanted to, to, to rent it. Uh, there was a lot of work in that. Uh, I was kind of glad I had a sweeter deal down there in West Palm. Uh, but, uh, you know, I got through, I assume they paid him well for taking care of it. The Florida Territory had great success in Tallahassee and for 10 years after they built this building until about 1981. When their business started dropping off dramatically, 
at the same time, Southeastern Wrestling, our company in Pensacola, was just taking off. Early 80s, uh, Florida was ex- they were experiencing a little bit of down, uh, down, uh, you know, things had dropped off a little bit. Dusty's run starting in 74 was uh, kind of uh, burning out a little bit. And uh, so they, they're having trouble drawing uh, in uh, places across the state, you know, the Florida territory, especially in the Florida panhandle. So they get in touch with me and they ask us if we'd like to take over Tallahassee and split the profit in that town with them. It was 250 miles from Tampa, the home of the Florida Territory, to Tallahassee, Florida. Uh, a long trip for wrestlers. Uh, you know, by some territory standards, that's really not a long trip. But uh, pretty long trip in Tampa. Uh, for us in Pensacola, where trips were really short, it would have been an extremely long trip. Uh it, would, it no longer made makes sense for them to send their wrestlers there because the crowds had dropped off and, and they weren't making much money. They started complaining about they didn't want to work Tallahassee anymore. Uh, and, and, you know, then when you looked at the map, we're actually 50 miles closer to Tallahassee than Tampa was. So we replaced their TV show with ours for three months. I said, yeah. Uh, you know, I talked to my partners and we, we decided, yes, we, we'll do this. Uh, we still needed big towns at that point. We were looking for one other big town. So we replaced their television show, uh, Florida Championship Wrestling, with uh, three months of our Southeastern Wrestling in that market, in that Tallahassee market. Uh, like I said, Dusty's run had been over. Uh, you know, at this point, it was beginning to be over, and our future was only beginning. Southeastern and Continental, we were just about, just taking off. Uh, there were not a lot of examples of this type of swap between territories. I can tell you, like tell you that 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 made sense for both of us, for both territories. We continued for almost a year to run Tallahassee, partners with the Florida Territory until Birmingham, Alabama, became available for sale. Birmingham was a perfect fit for Southeastern wrestling because it was a very good market and bigger market than Tallahassee, considerably bigger. And it was inside the state of Alabama in which a lot of our towns were during this time frame. When we purchased Birmingham from Nick Goulis in 1981, we dropped our Tallahassee relationship with the Florida territory. You know, and oddly enough, uh, Jeff, uh, the Florida Territories TV commentator, Gordon Soley, is going to start doing continental wrestling show for us in all places, in of all places, Birmingham in 1985. Okay, Ron, as we start to call for the go home here, I'd like to remind everybody that on Facebook, you can like the stud at Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud page, and you'll automatically become friends with the legend. On Twitter, he's available at Ron Fuller Welch. We'd like to remind you that Super Stud Cast number 24 with the exotic Adrian Street is out now and is it a great episode. And part two will be available on New Year's Eve. Ron, where are we going next week? 
Before we jump past the exotic one here, I just want to make a couple of comments about uh, that super stud cast. Wow. I mean, it has just been, fans are just going crazy about it. Uh, it's a historic, it's a historical event. It's a, it, it, it has subject matter in that super stud cast that I don't think people will find anywhere else on earth. Uh, and it is all about a guy who is just a remarkable talent, a remarkable human being, uh, remarkable at what he's able to do, write songs, sing songs, uh, write books, uh, an artist. I mean, it. the more in the process of me doing this super stud cast with Adrian Street, I really learned so much more about Adrian than I ever knew before. And uh, I just encourage fans out there, if you like Super Stud Cast, this one is, uh, it is, it's off the charts. <laughs> 62 is. years in the business, Ron. That's what Adrian told us. He'd been in the business for 62 years. I was speaking to a friend earlier this week and I told him, where else are you going to find a Super Stud Cast where you find someone who has, talks about Jim Cornette and David Bowie? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's quite the difference there. Yeah, I mean, you it's everywhere. I mean, it's not just a, you know, David Bowie, it's uh, you know, it's it's so many other people that uh, uh famous name people. Uh, you know, he was telling us that uh, Elton John bought one of his outfits in London out of a store, you know, because he was such a fan, you know, so yeah, if people aren't in, you know, if they don't know much about Adrian Street, I highly recommend you take a listen to this. You will learn more about the sport of wrestling, especially on two continents. I mean, we there's a lot of discussion here about Europe, uh, and then he comes to America, and uh, it's just it's just a tremendous tremendous uh, super stud cast, and I just encourage people to do it. Next week, because we are at the very end of 1975, I'm about to roll into southeastern 1976. Uh, next week's stud cast, before we get to the very first match in 1976, we're going to review 1975 and all the important things that happened in 1975 that led to the phenomenal growth of the company then 1976. Uh, we're going to talk about my good decisions and my bad decisions and, and my downright ugly injury of a collarbone and, and uh, the fall of 75. Among many other things, uh, it, it, it should be a tremendous program for fans that uh, follow along with us. You're going to really like this. Uh, we're going to close out 1975 in a great fashion, and we're going to, two weeks from now, start out uh, clean and, and smooth in uh, 1976. Okay, Ron, well, as we close out, first of all, uh, I'd like to wish you, the stud, a Merry Christmas, and also to all our listeners, the, uh, the Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. On behalf of the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller, our producer, Luke Eppelman, I am Jeff Bowdern. Next week, the story continues. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson your friends and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.